Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. I had someone tell me before class that Romans chapter 9 is one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. I can't imagine why you would think such a thing. Last week, we finished off Romans chapter 8. We finished up with the idea that there is nothing that can separate us from God. God has promised that those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he will sanctify. Those he sanctified, he will glorify. God has started the process. God will finish the process. We finished the first half of the book of Romans last week. If you remember, like most of Paul's writings, he starts with the theology part of it in the first half, and in the second half he goes on to, okay, what does it all mean? What is the application of what we've just discussed in the realm of theology? So here's the overview of Romans so far. We talked in chapter 1 that we are objects of God's wrath. In chapter 2, we talked about the fact that God's righteousness judges us. And it's commented at that point, but what about the Jews? Keep that question in mind. Romans chapter 3, none of us are good, but there is a righteousness that is from God. Chapter 4, we dealt with, but what about Abraham? If you are talking to a Jewish audience and the church that was at Rome was kind of Gentile converted, Jews converted, kind of a mix of the two. What about Abraham? Then chapter 5 was what did justification by faith bring us? What did Adam bring to us? What did he give to us? He gave to us a sin nature. Chapter 6, we talked about dying with Christ and what that means and what it means that we are to live with Christ. Chapter 7 is the reality that we keep struggling with sin. I can sit here and tell you everything that Christ has done for you, but then you realize that you still continue to struggle with sin. We still have this battle between us and the flesh. And then Romans chapter 8 was the, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Probably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. That's why we spent five weeks on it. So we get to the middle of the book. And we begin the application part of it. And to do that, we need to turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But as I said last, don't do that. (laughs) But as I said last week, for those who are somewhat good at math, you'll realize that chapter 12 doesn't follow chapter 8. Paul is going to address a subject that he dealt with kind of in the book to this point, which is, what about the Jews? If justification by faith alone is God's plan for salvation, and it is, what does this tell us about the Jews? Does Paul hate the Jews? Does God hate the Jews? Did God's plan for the Jews not work? Have we just abandoned them? There is a branch of theology that says the church is the replacement for the Jews as God's chosen people. The Jews are out. The church is in. Forget the Jews. I think I've mentioned before I have a friend who is Lebanese, a Christian, 
And he just doesn't understand why we, the American church, place any interest at all in the Jews. I mean, they rejected God. It's over. Get over it. But what we're going to see in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is that God still has a plan for the Jewish community. Now, they're going to have to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. We're not going to get over that. But God still has a plan for the Jewish community. So in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we're going to talk about what about the Jews. But in the midst of this, there is a lot of deep theological truth that we need to understand. But before we do that, we're going to do a history lesson. If you remember this chart, this chart was taken from one of the early lessons, like chapter 4, when we dealt with Abraham, to talk about Abraham being called by the fact that he was justified by faith because he responded to the call, while at the same time James uses Abraham as an example of you need works because he picked a different time uh, period of Abraham's life. We talked about this chart, so... Let's uh, revise the chart and come up with a quick history of the book of Genesis. All of Genesis in one chart. Actually, it's not. We're going to talk about children. Okay? Here's the key. We're going to talk about children. In Genesis chapter 16, Abraham has a son by Hagar. Remember, Abraham is married to Sarah. And I'll let you in on a little secret. His name at this time is not Abraham. It's Abram. Sarah's name is Sarai, but eventually they changed their names and we know them as Abraham and Sarah. So I will keep using those names. God promised Sarah a son that would be the heir. They get old. The plan didn't work. So Sarah says, take my servant Hagar and you will bear a child for me through her. So Abraham goes along with this. It was a mistake. Has a son named Ishmael. Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham. Any question? He is a descendant of Abraham. But he wasn't the descendant. Chapter 21. Abraham has Isaac by Sarah. The fulfillment of the promise. They were old. God waited until there was no biological way they could possibly have a child. And then they had a child to show that it was the child of the promise. Chapter 23, Sarah dies. Chapter 24, Isaac, the son of the promise, marries Rebekah. Chapter 25, most people don't realize this. Abraham marries Keturah and has more children. But it says very clearly that he gives them gifts and sends them on their way since the inheritance is going to Isaac. Now, I did learn something interesting this week. There is a uh, certain rabbinical teaching, not the orthodox rabbinical teaching, but there is a certain rabbinical teaching that says that Keturah is, was Hagar. Hmm, I had never heard that before. That he returned to Hagar and changed her name to show that her status had changed. Hmm. 
Chapter 25, Esau and Jacob are born to Isaac and Rebekah. Remember the twins. They were born in, they were both came from Isaac, they both came from Rebekah. Which one was born first? Esau. Who should have inherited the family estate, the promise? Esau. Isaac, in chapter 27, blesses Jacob. Chapter 29, Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. What a mess. <laughs> you know this story, right? He wanted to marry Rachel. They snuck in Leah. As I've always said, how drunk do you have to be on your wedding night that they can slip another woman in your bed and you don't know it? But hey. So over the course of the next eight chapters, huh? They didn't have electricity. I'm not sure that's a good excuse. <laughs> Over the next uh, however many chapters, six or seven chapters, he has 12 sons by four women. The two wives and the two handmaidens of the two wives. It's a weird story, okay? Here is the background. The 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Keep this all in mind because it's going to become very important as we start chapter 9. Are you ready for chapter 9? I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I would wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The first argument that people would have against Paul is that he doesn't like the Jews. He got tired of the Jews, he abandoned the Jews, he started preaching a theology that was counter to what the Jews believed, therefore he was just being mean toward the Jews. So Paul begins with the proclamation that if I could, I would, willing, I would be willing to be cursed in order that my brethren the Jews would be saved. And he calls God as his witness that this is his sentiment. He is not interested in throwing away the Jews. He is a Jew who is following the Messiah and he wants his brothers and sisters who are Jews to come with him. He begins with the discussion that it's not out of malice that I teach justification by faith alone. What he's going to do is talk about that the Jews rejected, but that God is saving a remnant in the midst of that rejection. And that's where we'll end up in chapter 11. Don't think that he's preaching this just to despise the Jews, he says. Because the Jews are blessed in God's eyes. We've seen this before in the book of Romans, where he lists the advantages of being a Jew. Here he has a very detailed list. To them belong the adoption, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them is the, uh, the, the patriarchs, and from their race comes Jesus Christ. The Jews were blessed by God. God called Abraham, Abram, who became Abraham, called Abram and said, follow me, and they said yes. God gave them the truth of who he is, and that's a good thing. The Jews are not to be despised because they have been blessed by God. From them came the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Their names are on that screen right there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob are known as the patriarchs. They are the creators, the founder in human sense of the Jewish nation. All of this is great stuff. All of it is good stuff. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. You ever get to the point where you think the word of God has failed? God has made some promise and it just didn't work. We can go through the scripture and look at length about God keeping his promises. But we look at our real world and we think, huh, God made a promise and it doesn't appear that it's working. And that is the second argument that Paul is going to address at length. Did God have a plan for the Jewish community and then was God not strong enough, capable enough, powerful enough to bring it into being? This is interesting because it's not just a theological discussion about the history of the Jewish community. If God is not able to fulfill his promises, whether to the Jewish people or any other group, why do we think that he would be capable of keeping his promises to us? If God made promises that he cannot keep, then Romans 8.28 falls apart. So what happened? Obviously, something caused the Jewish community to not respond to the grace that God offered them. Hmm, that's what we're going to talk about. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all that are children of Ab- not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Huh, what does that mean? It means that as we look on this chart at these names, not everyone that came out of Abraham is actually part of the covenant family. And that's what we're going to talk about. Not all those who are descended from Abraham are really part of the spiritual family. He is going to make a distinction between members of the covenant 
and those who are just biological descendants. Because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not from the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Let's stop right there. Who is the child of the promise? This is easy. Isaac. Who is the child of the flesh? Ishmael. We can stop right here and have a long theological discussion. But we're not going to. We, we, as human beings, know that we need to be saved. I believe that's ingrained in us. We know that the world is not as the world is supposed to be. We know we need something. And throughout human history, we as human beings have been trying to do that through our own efforts and strength. We have tried to do something that would allow us to be saved on our own terms. And every time, it's been a miserable failure. Abraham and Sarah had been promised a child. They had waited, they had waited, they had waited until the womb had dried up and they said, enough waiting, let's do it ourselves. God needs some help. God cannot do what God said he's going to do. We need to help God and his reputation. We're going to do it ourselves. All we need is a womb. And they found Hagar. Do we ever do this? Do we ever look at God and say, well, God, obviously you're asleep today or you're run off and doing something else. I'll do it myself for your good and I'll give you the glory and I'll give you the praise. But since you can't handle it, I'll do it myself. No, we would never do that. Every day we do that. We run ahead of God because we don't think God has everything in control. That is the child of the flesh. You go to the book of Galatians and there's a whole discussion. And Hagar and Ishmael are used as one side of the equation. And Sarah and Isaac are used as the other, the promise and the flesh. So this is kind of easy. Ishmael is not part of the covenant because Ishmael is not the child of the promise. Two sons, both came from Abraham. One is in and one is not. And we know why. Because one was of the flesh and one was of the promise. Just for those who may not be familiar, Ishmael is the descendant of it's where the Muslim community comes from today. You can have a long, long, um, fictional historical discussion about what the world had been like if, God, if Abraham and Sarah had just waited a few more years. Just a thought. But this one's easy to see. Child of the promise, 
child of the flesh. Let's keep reading. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And all of a sudden, it gets a little more complicated. Child of the promise, child of the flesh, that's easy. We can handle that one. Here we have the same biological father, Isaac, the same biological mother, Rebecca. We have two children who have not done anything right or wrong. They have not even come out of the womb yet. And God is calling one and not calling the other. Why? That got him real quiet. Surely it wouldn't be predestination, is his comment. He knew that one would screw up and the other one wouldn't. That's a good answer. I'm sure that's in some theology book somewhere. Two weeks ago, when we were dealing with 828 and 29 and 30 and 31, we began the discussion of predestination. The fact that God calls, God chooses, God elects. And at the time... We said that there are basically three different answers to this question. And actually, there's an infinite number, okay? You just kind of pick the slice of how much of which one you want to take. The first one, and I would recommend if you want a longer discussion of this, go listen to the lesson of two weeks ago. The first one is that God bases his choice on his foreknowledge, Back to Romans chapter 8. Those he, whom he foreknew, he predestined. It works like this. God is sitting there in eternity past, looking down the corridor of time. And he knows that if I call this person George, George is going to respond to the gospel, therefore I will elect George. At the same time, he looks down the corridor of time and says, if I call John, John's going to reject it, therefore I will not call John. So George or John get called based on God's foreknowledge of how they will respond if they are given the effectual calling. That is predestination based on the foreknowledge that he has. Now, there is a more um, probably closer uh, version of that where we acknowledge the fact that God is outside of time itself. And so the calling and the response, he knows that because he is outside of this pipe of time. 
but it's still based on his foreknowledge. The second option, what does it say? God's choice is based on his sovereign will. Why does God choose George and not John? Because God wants to. And we hate that. Option three, and I've heard this, in fact, I heard it just the other day from somebody, is that God does not choose individuals, but rather he chooses a group. I refer to this as the bus method, okay? And I don't say this to to belittle it, because it actually helps me to understand it. There's a bus in the parking lot. That bus is going to heaven. That bus is predestined to go to heaven. That bus will not not go to heaven. That bus is going to heaven. Now, do you want to be on the bus or not? That's the choice. So the individual is not being predestined. The group that's on the bus is being predestined to go to heaven. Here's the problem. I believe that Romans chapter 9 clearly teaches option 2. God's choice is based on his sovereign will. And I will tell you right up front, we don't like this. We think it's not fair. We think that it messes up the moral fabric of the universe. Generally, the way I teach Romans chapter 9 is I start talking, reading the passage with a little bit of discussion until somebody gets mad enough at me and starts throwing things. (laughs) I'm sorry. We can look at other passages in the Bible that deal with option one. (laughs) We might be able to find some that deal with option three. We can have Bible verses talking about choosing and free will. We can have Bible verses about God loving the whole world and not wanting any to perish. But today, we're in Romans chapter 9. And let's back up and read it again with this in mind. And not only so, verse 10, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, through, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Why did God choose Jacob instead of Esau? So that his purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Because of his sovereign will. Now, unfortunately, what most of us begin to think about when we do that is we talk about, well, he just randomly picked people. He's sitting there flipping a coin. Oh, you're in. You're out, you're in, you're out. And we think it's random because we don't understand it. We think that if God hasn't explained it to me, if God hasn't made it totally clear, 
then God is just flipping a coin to determine the fate of all of humanity. God is doing things for his purposes that we don't understand. That's not the same thing. You know this. You know it in a smaller term. You're an adult. You have a small child. You tell the child to do something. You can't explain certain things to the child. The child just needs to listen to you because you're the adult and they're the child. Well, magnify that an infinite fold and you see the distinction between us and God. God has his reasons and his reasons are not necessarily understandable by us. So, in order that his purpose in election might continue, not because of works, past, present, or future, because obviously there were no past or present works, they were in the womb. We can have a long discussion about whether you can sin in the womb. If you're a twin, you can whack your sibling You know, I don't know. Not because of works, past, present, or future, that you did do, you're going to do, but totally based on God's purpose of election. She was told... Huh? That came later, yeah. She was told the older will serve the younger, which is anathema to a, a good Jewish family. The older is the one that has the inheritance by right. The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. We don't like that word hated. And it's interesting because um, we think of hatred, I hate you. But we also see that in the scripture the word hatred is oftentimes used and a relative term. You know, Jesus says what? If you're not willing to hate your family and follow me, you're not ready to follow me. Obviously, he's not telling you to hate your family, but he's saying in relative terms, your love and honor and respect for me should be so much greater. So is that what he's talking about here? I had an individual tell me this week that the way he interprets this is, okay, I'm going to bless Jacob. And I'm not going to bless Esau. Now Esau still can do anything he wants. He can still choose to do good. He can still choose to do bad. But he just doesn't have the blessing. He doesn't start in the same place that Jacob does. But remember, we're dealing here with election. One is chosen. One is not. I've been waiting for you. Go ahead. Good question. His observation is, why is it translated hated if it doesn't mean hated? I think it's a very strong term. Okay? I think we can agree with that. Jacob I loved. We know what love means. We like that word. Esau I have hated. Esau was not chosen. Let's just stop right there. Esau was not chosen. And you 
And I can sit here and look at the life of Jacob and Esau and we can say, ah, that's why he wasn't chosen. But he wasn't chosen before that life was lived. And that's the point of this paragraph. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. You really want it to be option one, don't you? That God knew, therefore God didn't choose him because he knew. Yeah. I wish that were true. (laughs) It just sounds so much better. Let's keep reading. (laughs) We won't go there. What shall we say then? Is there injustice injustice on God's part? If I am choosing some and not choosing others, am I being unjust by doing that? Now, today, we don't use the word just very often. What word do we use? Fair. It's not fair that God chose Jacob and not Esau. We like the word fair because it's very, very nebulous. Now, the word fair has very good meanings, okay? You're playing a game. You want people to play fair. That means they follow the rules. They don't get mad and throw the board across the room, right? There's a good connotation to it. But if you've ever had more than one child, you know for a fact that you give something to child one and child two immediately responds, that's not fair. It's like I've told my children before. I've told you this. Life is not fair, but it's not fair for everyone. Therefore, it's fair. (laughs) Think about it for a while. It will grow on you. We use the word fairness in human terms. I want my share of this right now because, well, somebody else got that same thing. Any parent knows, though, that what one child needs and deserves is very different than what the next child needs and deserves, and the parent reserves the right to give child one what child one needs and to give child two what child two needs. And what that is may not be the same thing. But we put on our little blinders and we say, right now, you got something, I didn't get it, I want it, it's not fair. But he doesn't use the word fair. He uses the word injustice. And for that, we need to skip back to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. I can quote it to you, but you won't believe me because you didn't believe it when I read it several months ago. Yes. Nobody can come unless the Father draws me. We'll get to that too. Maybe next week. Chapter 3, starting a little bit before verse 11. 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is upon their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Huh. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay. Here's the picture. This is pretty simple. If that is a description of all of humanity apart from God, and I believe it is, if the wages of sin is death, what does all of humanity deserve if justice is what we're getting death death let's just stop right there do we really believe that do we believe that God has a cosmic bell curve and that he's going to go right to the middle of that bell curve and he's going to save the people on one side and he's not going to save the other people the people on the other side or let's say that it's a modern bell curve and hey we're going to pass everybody because they showed up to class it's like one writer i read one time said you know we argue about salvation by works salvation by faith we as modern americans believe in salvation by death alone you die, you go to heaven. Right? Because we don't really believe Romans chapter 3 when it says all of humanity has turned their backs on God, not just passively, but actively. So, if justice is all there is, what should happen to all the Jacobs and all the Esau's in the world. They should all be condemned. All of us, if we got justice, would be condemned because of our sin. Back to chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, what does justice require? That we all be punished for our sin. But God has chosen to exert mercy on the behalf of some. I will have mercy, he tells Moses, on whom I will have mercy. So here's the bottom line. Some get justice. Some get mercy. No one gets injustice. There is no injustice on God's part at all. But I know what you're thinking. But that's not fair. Right? If God bestows mercy on one person, God has to 
bestow mercy on everyone. Why? If that's true, it's not mercy. What is mercy? You know, you've heard the little saying before, and I guess it's close enough to truth that it's good. You know, grace is what? Unmerited favor, getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. No one has a right to mercy. No one can come and say, you owe me mercy or grace. It just doesn't make sense. God in his sovereign will bestows mercy on whom he will. But there is no injustice on God's part. None at all. But I know what you're thinking. It's not fair. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Who is the only one that can bestow mercy to forgive you of your sins, which are sins against God? It is only God. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills. Maybe we should just stop there and go home. And he hardens whomever he wills. If you remember, last year we worked through the book of Exodus. And we talked about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. In fact, it's kind of strange because as you work through the various plagues, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or it says Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart, or it just says his heart was hardened. And you go, who did it? And the answer is yes. Go back to chapter, don't, but if you want to later, go back to chapter 1 of the book of Romans. And we see this downward spiral where humanity refused to acknowledge God as the creator and chose to worship the created things instead. And it says God gave them over. It's a picture of a downward spiral. And three different times it says God gave them over. My interpretation of that is that he let them do what they wanted to do. And it wasn't pretty. We talk about God's grace that saves us. We also talk about God's common grace that he bestows on all of humanity. We see the verse that says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And if you live in Houston, it rains a little too much, okay? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. That is God's common grace. Part of God's common grace is his restraint of sin. People are not as bad as they could be. You may find that hard to believe sometime when you read the newspaper, but people are not as bad as they could be because God restrains their wickedness. He does that through their conscience, and he does that through 
the civil order in society. But what if God removed that restraint? You want to harden your conscience? You want to do things that you know are wrong? Okay, go do them. And I believe that's what is meant by hardening your heart. Who does it? God? Yes. Who does it? Us? Yes. God lets us do what we want to do in rebellion against God. And our hearts are hardened. I remember teaching a lesson one time. And this young man was a visitor, actually. And he asked me, does God harden people's hearts today? And I, being try, trying to be nice, you know, hemmed and hawed around for a while, and he kept pressing the question. And I finally said, yes. And he said, I just can't believe that. And to the best of my knowledge, he didn't come back. <laughs> He's not the only person I've ever run off from lessons. Go ahead. There's no partiality with God, but he's also choosing people. Oh, look at the time. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Because, and there's a reason to evangelize. No, we shouldn't do that, right? <laughs> We're out of time. I've got two good questions, and we'll deal with those next week. But you may not come back next week, so I've got to read the rest of this passage, okay? We'll pick it up again. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? How can he hold me accountable if I am not to blame? For who can resist his will? You ready for this? This is God, I mean, this is Job looking at God saying, explain yourself to me. And God turns to Job and he says, who the heck do you think you are? That's the one question version of the hundred questions that he asks Job. And here's the part we don't like. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand. Why? For his glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And we will pick it up next week. Back at verse 19. We're not going to skip all those verses. And we'll address the question of partiality. We'll discuss the question of election. But let's just stop here with this conclusion. You ready for it? Salvation begins and ends with God. There is no one in this room, no one in this room 
who can say I'm saved, who can say I did it. If you want to say I did it, then we need to start talking about your salvation. Salvation begins and ends with God. I had the opportunity one time to uh, go hear uh, R.C. Sproul speak for a day on the doctrine of predestination. He spoke the whole day on it. It was great. He gets to the end, and he's taking questions and answers. And this sweet old lady walks up to the microphone and says, Now, you're not saying that God chooses some and doesn't choose others, are you? And R.C. Sproul, in the nicest way he possibly can, said, Yes, ma'am, that's exactly what I'm saying. We don't like that because it is an affront to our human idea of our autonomy and our ability to control the world. There is only one God, and you are not it. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your grace that has been bestowed upon us. Thank you that you initiated salvation when we were at war with you. And we pray, Lord, that we would come to a continuing understanding of the magnitude of your grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.